right, today we're uh, continuing on in our series on uh, the doctrine of God. For the last two weeks, uh, we've talked about the, just the reality, the truth that God exists and that we can know him. Um, we can't know him comprehensively. We can't know him exhaustively. We can't even know kind of one small part of him exhaustively or comprehensively, but we can still know things from God's word that are true about him. Last week, we talked about the Trinity and how God reveals himself in three persons. Each of those persons is fully God, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that there is one God who is composed of these three persons. And for the rest of our series on uh, on, on the theology of God is uh, going to be focused on his attributes. So an attribute, just to give you a definition of God, is an aspect of God's being or character that he has revealed to be true of himself. So these are things that we see after studying God's word that are true about him. They're his attributes. And there's, there's two kinds of attributes. There's an incommunicable attribute and a communicable attribute. Since communicable and incommunicable aren't words that we use in everyday conversation, think about diseases. Uh, so uh, communicable diseases are uh, diseases that you can get from someone. So today, my family is not here. Uh, they are at home. They're sick, and that's because uh, the only time two-year-olds reliably share things is when it's germs. Uh, and so Lucy had a cough, and now everybody except for me has a cough because it's a communicable disease. It's something that she shared with us. So God's attributes, the incommunicable ones, are ones that he does not share with us or with anyone. So those are his attributes that only he has. So the, the five things that we're going to talk about today are five things that only describe God. They can't and don't describe anyone else or anything else. Um, Communicable attributes are God's attributes, and there's a whole lot of them that he shares with us. So God is gracious, God is merciful, God is loving. We can be those things too. We can't be those things as much as God is those things, but we can be them too. So we're talking about the incommunicable attributes today. And so, you know, God's word says, be holy as I am holy. So we kind of emulate his holiness or be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect or, or forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. But uh, God's word never tells us to be self-existent or unchangeable or, or omnipresent. These are things that we don't do, which is good news. That means today's sermon, zero application, right? We can't do these things, so don't even worry about it. So we're going to walk through each of these five things. Uh, and the words in parentheses, just so you know, aseity, immutability, uh, those are words that some people use to describe these things, but since they're not words that we readily understand, uh, I gave us other words that are better. Um, so aseity just means self-existence, immutability just means unchangeableness, and, and so on. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through each of these things, and I'm going to give you a definition we're going to see it in God's word, and then we're going to qualify that definition because it's important that we don't take these things about God too far or else we'll misunderstand who he is. So we're going to start with uh, his self-existence. The definition is that God does not need us or any of his creation for anything. God exists from himself 
And he doesn't need us to exist. He doesn't need anything in his creation to exist. He just exists because that's who he is. And we see that in Scripture. So, for example, in Acts 17, Paul says, speaking to kind of the crowds in Athens, he says, Then God, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Since God gives everything to creation that creation has, he doesn't need anything from them because he still has everything that he's able to give. Um, it's also evident in Psalm 50. So Psalm 50, 10, and 12, 10 through 12 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. This is God speaking. He's saying he doesn't need anything from his creation, because all of it is his already. And then in Job, God asks Job, he says, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? And the answer is no one. Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So God does not need us. He doesn't need anything in his creation for anything. And that's important because sometimes you hear people say things like, well, God created people uh, so that he could have fellowship with us. As if God, before Genesis 1, is just up in heaven and he's bored and he's, he's really needy. And so he thinks, you know what I'll do so that my life, my existence is better? I'll make some people who will disobey me and rebel against me because that will make everything perfect uh, because I'm not already perfect. That's, that's not true, right? God was perfect before he made anything. He had everything he needed before he made anything. So he didn't make us because he needed anything. Uh, last week we talked about the Trinity and how God exists within himself in perfect communion as three persons. So he doesn't need other people who are worse to make him better. Um, but this is where we want to qualify this because we don't want to take that too far and say that like because God doesn't need us, because he doesn't need anything, that then we're irrelevant to him. And so here's the qualification. God doesn't need us, but... We can bring glory to God and bring him joy. And that's important because that's where our existence has meaning. The, the, if, if, if we don't see that, if we don't understand that, if we don't see the purpose of our existence as bringing God glory, bringing him joy, then our existence is meaningless. We're living just for this life and it ends and it's pointless. But if there is a God who doesn't need anything from us or any of else in his creation, but we can bring him joy and we can bring him glory, then that can be the point of the purpose of our existence. So we see this qualification in Isaiah uh, 43. God is speaking. He says, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. So he's calling his people back. And we'll talk about that when we get to Isaiah 43. He says, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God created people, not because he needed us, but so that we might bring him glory. We can also bring him joy. We see this in Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. So this Zephaniah 3.17, it's often just kind of ripped out of context and used to say kind of whatever we want it to mean. But one thing that it does say is that God rejoices over his people. When we trust in him, when we follow him, when we obey him, it's a source of joy for him. He sings over us with loud singing. Uh, And that's something that should encourage us. God exists from himself. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything in his creation. But we can glorify him. We can bring him joy uh, even though he doesn't need it. Uh, We can be a source of joy for him. So we should see both this, this truth and this qualification in Scripture. He doesn't need us, but that doesn't mean that our existence is Pointless. That's God's self-existence, and that's something that only describes God. Um, I remember when I was in college, I read this this essay from Ralph Waldo Emerson, who who I really like because he's he's brilliant. Um, and he he wrote this this essay called Self Reliance, and I was like, absolutely, men should be self reliant. We shouldn't need anyone for anything ever. But that's impossible. right? We cannot do it on our own. Even if we think that we can, even if we try, there's going to come a point in our life where we need something outside of ourselves, which really is all the time. right? We need air. We need food. We need water. We need a shelter to protect us. So even if we think that we're self-reliant, we're really not. Only God is independent. Only God is self-reliant. Only God is self-existent. So this truth only describes him. There is none like him in this regard. Uh, The second uh, incommunicable attribute of God is his unchangeableness. The other word here is immutability, which children also have. They're unable to be muted. (laughs) Definition here is God's being, character, purposes, and promises do not change. His being, his character, his purposes, and promises do not change. So last week, and then even today in the call to worship, we read James 1.17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. Psalm 102, in a couple places. My days, this is David speaking about himself. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. And then later he says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Notice the contrast in this psalm between God as creator and his creation. Creation is temporary. It's fleeting. It withers. It fades. It it quickly passes away. But God lasts forever. He remains the same and is enthroned forever. His being, his character, his purposes, and his promises, they don't change. We see specifically his purposes not changing in Isaiah 46. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling the bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. God's purposes do not change. They get accomplished always. 
In Psalm 33, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So his being and character don't change. His purposes don't change. And his promises don't change. We also read Numbers 23 at the beginning. God is not a man that he should lie. What he says he does. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? The answer to those questions is absolutely yes. When God says he will do something, he does it. His being his character, his purposes, and his promises do not change. God is unchangeable. But this is where we want to qualify it. Those things don't change, but God responds with emotion, and he acts and feels differently in different situations. The reason why this qualification is important, because if we see God as someone who never changes, we might think, well, then no matter what happens in the world, he's just the same. You know, he never never responds to things. He's he's unchangeable. The world is unchangeable. We're just kind of stuck in this kind of deterministic cycle where nothing we do matters. Nothing that happens matters. But that's not what we see in Scripture. In Scripture, we see God showing emotion. So in uh, Isaiah 62 and Zephaniah 3, God rejoices like we just read about. He's grieved in Psalm 78 and Ephesians 4. He's wrathful in Exodus 32. He has pity and compassion in Psalm 133. He loves in Psalm 103. And we could go to a whole lot of other passages to see God having emotion. Now that doesn't mean that his emotion is just like ours, where it's fickle and it changes from one moment to the next. But it does mean that he responds with emotion and he responds differently in different situations. So a place where I think we could go to see that is the book of Jonah. So in Jonah, God sends Jonah to Nineveh. And we all know that Jonah doesn't go at first like he's supposed to. But why does God send Jonah to Nineveh? What's what's the point? What does he tell Noah or Jonah to go there and do. Does anybody know what his, what his plan is, what his purpose is? To call them to repent? Is that what? Actually, it's not. He sent them there to announce judgment. <laughs> to say, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Judgment. There might be in there kind of an implied, you should repent. Uh, but that's not what Jonah says. Jonah eventually goes He preaches this message of judgment because God says their evil has come up before him, so he sends Jonah to announce this judgment. Um, And when he preaches it, the people repent. The king repents. He puts on sackcloth. All the people repent. They put on sackcloth. They even put sackcloth on all the animals. They're saying, like, we are all repenting uh, because we don't want this judgment to come on us. This is what Jonah tells us in 3.10. He says, When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he would not do it. So God doesn't do to Nineveh what he said he was going to do to Nineveh. And that's important for us to recognize, and it's important for us to qualify this definition here, because if we're not careful, then a kind of superficial, shallow understanding of God's unchangeableness is going to do one of two things. Either it's going to assume, well, you know, too bad that you repented, Nineveh. It's it's a little too late. God said he was going to destroy you, and even though you repented, too bad, so sad. His purposes don't change. You're destroyed, which that's not what happens. 
though we might be prone to think that that would happen in other circumstances. Or on the other side, we would look at this and say, well, God does change. Look at the book of Jonah. He, he changed his mind. He didn't pour out judgment on them like he said he was going to. So it's not true to say that God doesn't change. And we would deny this truth that's present in Scripture. But the reality is that God doesn't change in Jonah. The Ninevites change. God said, I'm going to pour out judgment on you because you're evil and you do evil things. Noah, or Jonah goes to Nineveh to preach this message. The people respond to it with repentance. The circumstances change, and then God responds differently, but he responds differently in a way that's in agreement with his being, character, promises, and purposes that don't change. So it's not him that's changing in Jonah, it's, it's the people, it's the situation, it's the circumstances. So when we think about the truth that God is unchangeable, we need to recognize that that doesn't mean that he doesn't respond differently in different circumstances. Now, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that God responds differently in same situations. Right? We don't have to worry that God is going to respond one way in one situation, the next time that situation happens, respond a completely different way. Because he doesn't change, we can trust that he's going to keep responding in the same way that he responds to the same situations. But when the situation changes, then we should recognize that God, because he rejoices, because he's wrathful, because he pours out mercy, because he has compassion, because he does have emotions, that he's going to respond differently in different situations, just like he does in the book of Genesis. That's why we share the gospel with people, right? Because he has said that they are under judgment, but there's this plan of salvation that he's you know, moved heaven and earth and all of history to orchestrate so that we could go out and tell people about this forgiveness that they can have if they place their faith in Christ. If they don't place their faith in Christ, then they're going to be under God's judgment like he said they would be. But if they do place their faith in Christ, then they're going to be given eternal life like God said they would be given. That's why we share the gospel, because God doesn't change. Because his being, character, purposes, and promises stay the same. And so we can go out and we can announce this good news about God's promises and trust that it's still going to be good news when the end comes. God doesn't change, but he does have emotion. He does respond differently in different circumstances. The next attribute of God that we're talking about today is his eternity or his infinity. Um, and these next two are going to be quite a bit more abstract and harder for us to relate to. Um, like we can relate to the first two because they're kind of the opposite of what we are. We do change. We change all the time. We, we get older. We age. We, you know, emotionally change. But God doesn't. And so we can think about it as kind of the opposite of us. But when we come to eternity and omnipresence, they're just kind of uh, outside of our capacity for understanding. So, definition of eternity. God has no beginning, no end, and no succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. So, this one, the qualification is part of the definition because it's so confusing to us. So, God has no beginning, he has no end, he has no succession of moments. Time doesn't pass 
in his being. He sees all time equally vividly, yet he sees events in time and acts in time. So we're going to go through a few verses, and then I'm going to try to explain this. Uh, Revelation 1.8 says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God existed before anything else existed, including time. He's the beginning and the end. He always was, he is, and he always will be. He has no beginning, he has no end, he has no succession of moments. Um, but here, by far, is my favorite verse that demonstrates God's relationship to time. This is John eight fifty eight. Jesus says to the people he's talking to, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So before Abraham was, past tense, Jesus says, I am. Um, this, like, I would have loved to have been in the room when, like, John is writing this down and trying to get the grammar right in his sentence. Before Abraham was, I was. No, wait, that's not what he said. He said, before Abraham was, I am. Wait, that can't be right. That doesn't make sense. Uh, or when it's translated from, from Greek into any other language, and the translators are trying to figure out how to phrase this in their language in a way that makes sense, because it doesn't make sense. How could you be now... Before Abraham was then. It doesn't make sense, right? God has a present existence regardless of what time we're talking about. So he could also say before Steve will be 20 years from now, I am. Before Abraham was, you know, a long time ago, I am. Before anyone else is in the future, I am. He has a present relationship to time all the time. Maybe Isaiah can help clear things up for us. This is what he says in Isaiah. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand, I will accomplish all my purpose. So this is a verse we talked about earlier about his purposes not changing, but here we see it describing how God relates to time. He knows the beginning from the end. He sees all time equally vividly. And so here's a, a graphic that maybe will, will help this for us. So God is, you know, up at the top in a circle, and this is a timeline of history down at the bottom. So we got creation on the left, uh, then the incarnation, then yesterday, then the end of all things, and then it you know keeps going on forever in the past. And God, when he relates to time, he sees all events equally vividly. So if you think about a moment in your life that you remember very, very, very well. So uh, for a lot of us uh, who are older, it might be an event like September 11th. You know, like you remember where you were, what you were doing on that day, what that day was like, what happened that day. Like that's one thing that people in our culture will be like, you know, I know, I know what I was doing when that happened. I just came out of a principles of accounting class at HLG and went downstairs to the student center and saw it on TV. Um, and so like that is a date in my mind that I remember vividly. 
And there's other ones, right? Like maybe like the birth of your kid or your wedding day or, or whatever. There's points in your life you can look back on and see more clearly than like what you had for breakfast 347 days ago. Like we don't remember those kinds of things as clearly unless it was just a great breakfast compared to more important events. God, when he relates to time, he sees all events, whether we're talking about the past or the present or the future, with that kind of lens. And we can't understand that because we can't do that. Even when I think about a day that I remember very well, I still don't remember everything about it. I remember it imperfectly. I don't see it completely vividly. But God sees all time like that. Um, And that's because he exists outside of time. He's Lord over it. But, a qualification here, God acts in his creation. And because of the nature of his creation, he takes action in time. So he orchestrates history. He he does things uh, within in advancement of time. So Galatians 4, 4 and 5 tell us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come. So even though God sees all events equally present, he still also sees the passage of time. And so throughout the Old Testament, he's orchestrating this plan of redemption and he's waiting for the moment in which he's going to bring that to pass. So he, he sees all of that, but yet he's still working within history to accomplish his, his purposes and his promises, which don't change. And so God is eternal in this way, outside of time. And here, you know, we might, we might think, well, wait, what about, what about us? You know, you said this was an, an incommunicable attribute, but don't we, John 3.16, get eternal life if we trust in Christ? Absolutely we do. But we still won't relate to time like God does. We still won't have an eternal existence like he has because he is, has a necessary, self-existent, eternal existence, and we don't. So even if we get eternal life, we still haven't existed forever. Uh, we will exist for a long time till infinity. But God has always existed. We won't be always was. So if you understand all of that, uh, come explain it to me afterwards. God is, uh, has eternity in himself. The next one is omnipresence. This one's also abstract. God doesn't have size or dimensions and is present Everywhere. So Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? The answer is no. Uh, or yes. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So God takes up all of space. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There isn't anywhere David can go where God is not. God is everywhere. Solomon recognizes this when he's dedicating this, the house of God, the place where God's presence is supposed to be. He says, but will you, God, indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Uh, so God 
is bigger than his creation, but he also doesn't have size. So think about it this way. Before God made heaven and earth, where was he? I mean, the answer I think that we want to give is he was nowhere. But like where didn't exist. So we need another word. He was there, everywhere. Uh, But nothing existed. God doesn't have space like we do. We take up a finite amount of space. Uh, You can see me. You could come up and, you know, punch me in the arm because I exist in this spot. God doesn't have size. So we shouldn't just think, well, you know, God's really big. He's bigger than anything. Yeah, but like he doesn't really have size. He doesn't really have, he can't be measured with an infinite measuring tape. God just exists everywhere and even in the places that, that aren't aware. Um, but I'm not saying, like, this is not pantheism, right? So pantheism is everything is God. So this, this chair is God. This Bible on the floor is God. This line on the floor, Kyle, is God. Every, God is everywhere. And because of that, then we should worship everything as God. That's not what I'm saying. God is present at every point in space. So God is in this music stand. Uh, he's, he's, he's in Kyle. He's in his flip-flops, even. Um, but he's not those things. He's not this music stand. He's not Kyle. Uh, I think we can all agree on that. And he's not his flip-flop. Uh, so he's present at every point in space. He doesn't have size or dimensions. But here's the qualification. God is present in different ways, in different circumstances. So... Uh, in uh, Acts 2, when the believers are meeting at Pentecost and they hear the sound of a rushing wind and they feel like God is present with them, God was present with them in a very different way than he is present in this music stand. Right? It was a, a tangible manifestation of his presence. Or when Jesus is getting baptized and they see the dove come down from heaven that represented the Holy Spirit kind of uh, descending upon Jesus in bodily form. He was present there in a way that he isn't present at every other point. Um, or in the person of Christ, when he was on this earth, he had a physical, tangible existence. He walked around, he talked to people, he died on the cross. He was present at that point in space in a way that he isn't in every other point in space. And I think that another place where we see this to be true is in believers. Right? God's word tells us that when we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Because of that, God is present in us in a way that he is not present in people who haven't trusted in Christ. He's present us in a way that he's not present at every other space in history. Um, and so God is present with us in different ways. Or his word tells us, you know, when, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. He is present with us when we gather together to meet with him in a way that he isn't present with us the rest of time. So God doesn't have size. He doesn't have dimensions. He's present at every single point in space. And yet he's present in different ways in different circumstances. And that's, that's a good, good thing for us because then we can experience God and have a relationship with him. Um, the next one is... I don't know, I think both the most helpful and the hardest to understand. But that's the simplicity 
or unity of God. The definition here is that God isn't divided up into parts. So all that God is, he is always. He is all the time. He just is who he is, and he's like one thing. He's not a collection of things. And this is important because when we're talking about his attributes, this matters. And so, for example, in John or 1 John 1, he says, God is light. So he's saying God is light. That's an attribute of God. But then, three chapters later, he says God is love. To which we say, well, which one is it, John? Is he light or is he love? Make up your mind. Make a decision. Write this letter in such a way that's coherent and logical so we can understand it. But he says that he's light and he says that he's love because he's both of those things. And because he's both of those things, he's not one of those things more than he's the other of those things. And so God, when we think about his attributes or his characteristics, we shouldn't just think that he's some kind of random collection of attributes. So there's the first picture we got here. Next one. There we go. So sometimes when we think about God and we think about his attributes, and as we're going to talk about them over the next few weeks, we might be prone to think, well, you know, he's got this kind of section of himself that's holiness. And he's got this other section, which is love. And then he's got this other section, which is mercy. And he's got this other section of himself, which is wrath. And so he's just this, kind of this, this bundle, this group of attributes. That is not who God is. He's also not, uh, this is his being, the next, next picture, where he's God. And then he's got all these things kind of attached onto himself. And so as if he existed in a certain way before he made the world, and once he made the world, he decided to add on some some love and some justice and some light and some peace and all these other things, and they're just kind of tacked on to the perimeter of who God is. That's That's not who he is. Instead, he is a unity. And so we've got this this next picture. So God is the circle, And we know that he's present within the circle because he's present everywhere. Um, And the lines, the crisscrossy lines, are his attributes. And like they're they're all part of him. So, and this, I mean, this this is an incomplete picture because God could we could have like lines going everywhere all the directions, because he has all these attributes, and they're all part of who he is. They're part of his being, and his character, and his promises, and his purposes that don't change, and he is all of them all of the time. And so one of these lines could represent holiness, and one of these lines could represent love, and one of these lines could represent justice, and one of these lines could represent wrath, and we could go on and on and on and on, and he has all of them all of the time because they're part of who he is. And that's important for us to get because we don't work like this, right? Sometimes we are more angry than we are kind. Sometimes we're more kind than we are selfish. Sometimes we're more happy than we are sad because we are human beings and have broken emotions. We're not everything we are all of the time. Um, God possesses all of his attributes to the same degree all of the time. So we can't say he's more holy than he is just, or he's more just than he is gracious, or he's more gracious than he is loving. He is all of those things as perfectly and as infinitely as he can be because he's God, and that's who he is. Um, But here's the qualification. 
even though that's who he is, he does show some of his attributes more at certain times than others. And so, for example, um, in, in hell, God displays his wrath more than he does the rest of the time. So I don't, I don't think that I would agree when people say, well, you know, hell is just the place where God isn't. No, hell is the place where the worst part for us of God is in its fullness. God is there because he's pouring out wrath on people there. Um, or we could look at the cross where we see his his grace and justice on display in a balanced way that we maybe don't see anywhere else. Or we could look at Jesus' earthly ministry where he's walking around with sinners all of the time and showing them grace and mercy and love uh, and not pouring out his wrath on them. And so God is all that he is all of the time, but he shows who he is in different ways in different circumstances. So uh, I know that that is not easy to get, and you might say, why, why does that matter? Um, and so I want to kind of answer those questions, hopefully, when we talk about these incommunicable attributes. I know that I promised at the beginning that there was no application, uh, but then I was less honest than I am now. And so I want to tell you how you can apply these things. So uh, his self-existence. We should recognize that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us. And yet he lets us participate in a relationship with him where we can bring him joy. We can cause the God of the universe who doesn't need anything from anyone to be joyful. We can bring him glory. That should motivate us to love and trust and worship and obey him. Because we can bring him joy, like what we do this week, what we do this afternoon, what we do in the future, it matters. We can bring joy to God, and so we should uh, recognize that as we're trying to live our lives in the way that he calls us to. Recognizing that that's not just him you know, telling us what to do for no reason, but it's so that we can bring him glory and bring him joy and serve the point of our existence in this world. Uh, with his unchangeableness. I think that that should be a source of of comfort and strength for us. I mean, like, what what would our lives be like if we couldn't trust in that? If we genuinely had to be concerned that this thing called the gospel that we believe in and trust in could just change right now? Like, if, if all of a sudden... We found out that God changed his mind and, you know, really didn't want to put all of our sins on Christ. And so we weren't forgiven. We didn't have eternal life. We still had to, you know, live according to the law and do all that it says in order to have a relationship with him. If God could change, pretty much everything that we trust in and believe in erodes beneath us. But because he doesn't change, we can trust him. We can be comforted by him. We can be encouraged by the fact that he is who he says he is, and he always will be. When we think about the fact that God is eternal, that he sees all events equally vividly, I think the best thing for us to do is to apply that to the future. Because as we think about tomorrow or next year, you know, 30 years from now, we might be worried about what the future holds. But we don't have any idea. We can't know that, but God does know that, and he's orchestrating history 
for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And so we can trust him because he knows what's coming and he's planned it and has prepared for it. And so as we think about the fact that he's eternal, I think that that should be comforting to us. Um, when we talk about God's omnipresence, um, and I think that's something that should mess with our heads. God is everywhere. And I don't think we think about that because I don't think we want to think about that. Because if I selfishly, sinfully, fleshly want to do something that's wrong, I want to do it in the way that the least amount of people see it. Right? Like if we're going to make mistakes, we want to make mistakes that are secret that no one knows about, so no one can see and point out and say, hey, you did that thing, and it was wrong. And so people, when they sin, they withdraw from community. They withdraw from those around them. They withdraw from the people that can see them do those things, and they hide, and they hide their sin. But when we remember that God is omnipresent, we know that there's not anywhere we can go from God's presence, just like David tells us in Psalm 139. So even when we're alone in our house or alone in a room, God is there. He sees what we do. He is present in that space with us. And that should both convict us of the sin that we think that we've hidden, not just from others, but from God. And it should also convict us and motivate us to obey going forward. It's a lot harder to sin when you think about the fact that God is present in the space that you're in. So do that. Don't disregard this as just, well, that's just abstract. It doesn't really matter to my life. You know, who cares that God is present everywhere? It does matter when we think about it and when we use it to motivate us to worship him and serve him. I think also, as believers, we should remember that God is present in us in a way that he's not present in other places. He's put his spirit within us. He empowers us towards obedience. He empowers us to do uh, good works and to love and serve other people. And so we can bring the presence of God into places that it's not present in that way because we're not there. Other believers aren't there. And so Maddie can go to Romania and Kyle can go to India and they can bring the presence of God with them into those communities in a way that it's not there. And we can do that in this city that we live in. So we should recognize that and believe that and walk in that. And the last one, right? God is, is, is simple uh, in that he's not made up of parts and that his attributes don't like war within him, but they exist in balance. That's a good thing for us, right? We don't have to wake up in the morning and wonder, all right, is God going to be angry today or is he going to be gracious? Is, is today a justice day? Or is it a love day? Which one is it? I need to know so that I can plan my day accordingly. That's not how God works. He is who he is all the time. And so his love and his justice and his grace and mercy and his peace and his wrath, they all are part of him and he is who he is all the time and he always will be. And so we can trust in him who doesn't change and who is simple and just is who he is. He is the person that should be easier, easiest for us to relate to because of that. He's not complex in that way like we as human beings are, to where you don't really ever know what you're going to get. Um, so yeah, as we take the Lord's Supper today, 
mean, first of all, I would encourage you to just remember that God is present. Right? There are at least two of us here who are gathered in God's name. Hopefully more than that. But that's what we're here for. We're here to worship God, to hear from his word, to to be in relationship with him in a community of people who are in relationship with him. And so as we take the Lord's Supper today, remember that God is present here in a way that he's not present in other places. And so as you prepare your heart to the Lord to, to take the Lord's Supper, like you're not preparing your heart in a vacuum. You know, just empty space where, where God isn't, where it doesn't really matter what you do or don't do in those moments. He's, he's here with us. He's meeting with us, and we should recognize that and talk to him, have a relationship with him, recognize that his purposes do not change. His plan doesn't change. His promises do not change. What he said he was going to do, he's going to do. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, that is a demonstration of that. He has kept his promises to his people. He has fulfilled his purposes to unite all things in Christ and to be making all things new in Christ. The, the cup represents that his blood was spilled for us and for our sin. And the, the bread represents that his body was broken for us and for our sin. So it's a demonstration that God has kept his promises. And we should both be encouraged by that for the past and encouraged by that for the future because we know that he's going to keep keeping his promises. He's going to continue to be who he is. He is the same God today that he was on the day that Jesus died on the cross. And he will continue to be that God. So as you prepare your heart, I would encourage you just to meet with him and allow his presence in you, if you've trusted in Christ, to do what God gave us the Spirit to do, to convict us of sin and to motivate us towards obedience. Um, If you're someone who's here today who hasn't trusted in Christ, uh, I'm sure that a lot of this is just really confusing. Um, and you wonder, why, why, why are we trying to understand who this God is? The reason why we're trying to understand who this God is is because he is the only God who exists and who made us and who we can have a relationship with because he sent his son, also God, into this world to save us from our sin, to save us from our rebellion against our creator so that we can be given an eternal life, an eternal relationship with him. So if you haven't trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to do that because if you don't, you are going to get to experience the side of God that people do not want to experience. He is going to be present in hell in the place for those who haven't trusted in Christ in a way that he's not anywhere else and it's not going to be pleasant. And we know that God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't change his plan or his purposes. And so if those are your circumstances when you die, that's what you're going to get. And it's not just about avoiding hell, but we can have a relationship with this God who is beyond our comprehension, who is uh, present everywhere, who sees time in a way that doesn't make sense to us, who is eternal, who is simple, who is self-existent and doesn't need us, but he wants to have a relationship with us anyway. Um, So as we take time to prepare the Lord's Supper, I would encourage you to think about those things and allow his spirit to search you and know you in a way that only he can. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us your word and that in it, you reveal yourself to us, uh, even if you reveal yourself to us in ways that don't make sense. 
God, I thank you that even though you didn't need to, you made us, you made this world. And that you give us meaning by allowing us to bring you glory and to bring you joy. And that we know that you don't change that your plan and your promises and your being and character always have been the same and always will be the same. God, I thank you that that we know from your word that you're present here and that you're present with us in a way that you're not present in other places. Pray that we wouldn't take that gift of grace for granted, but that you would help us to be those who, who worship and serve and honor and glorify you because of that. God, and I thank you that we don't have to worry about how your wrath relates to your grace or your mercy to your justice. That we can trust that you will be who you are with us all the time. Pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would just be with us, that you would send your spirit, that you would bring to mind things that we need to confess and repent of and call forth opportunities for obedience in us.